All right. Well, go ahead and have a seat. And good morning to you, church. So let's get our Bibles out and let's all get our eyes on a copy of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 6 is where we're going to be this morning. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 6, a, a couple of things just real quick. Uh, first of all, who loves baptisms? I mean, isn't that just so much fun? I love uh, seeing how God is moving and working and what he's doing in people's lives and just the incredible joy and the gift uh, that that is. We praise uh, God for that. Also, uh, last week, Zach Sullivan uh, was here candidating, so we're excited uh, to announce and to let you know uh, that Zach Sullivan, Zach Sullivan has officially uh, uh, taken the role and the position here at Faith Church, and so we're excited about that. <clears throat> Yeah, praise God for that. So listen, church, be praying for them. Uh, be praying for them as they transition, as they move, and as, as they head out, say goodbye, sell their home, all those types of things. Jessica is very, very pregnant, uh, so be praying for that. And, and then the tentative timeline right now is somewhere in the next six to eight weeks uh, that we anticipate that they'll uh, be with us. Now, that's all subject to change, but that is the uh, kind of the tentative plan right now as we uh, see things. But uh, with that, uh, l- let's get our eyes on a copy of God's Word. We've got a, a lot of real estate to cover this morning. It might not feel like it, uh, not, not a long text, but boy, there's a lot that's going on in this text. And as we continue in our sermon series, Messy Church, through the book of 1 Corinthians, I'll just tell you this morning, it's, it's going to be pretty messy uh, dealing with the issues that are in front of us. And so let me ask you, just by, by way of, of moving us towards what God has for us here this morning, when you think of your body... Just think about that for a moment. Think of your body. What is it that comes to mind? And as you think about that, you, in our image-saturated culture, you probably think about how you look. And what do people think about how I look? Well, some of you, if I say your body, you might just go, it hurts. Uh, I'm in pain. Like, I just want it to go away. Uh, some of you might be thinking, man, I actually forgot to eat breakfast. I'm kind of hungry. Uh, it's getting late. You might be thinking about what you need. <clears throat> I would like to think at some point in time, eventually where you're going to end up is you're going to think about your sexuality. But that's going to be a part and a piece of what comes to your mind. Now, let me say that and follow that up with the second question for you here this morning. Um, with respect to thinking of your body... How often do you connect it to God's glory? I'll just be honest with you. I mean, I I was studying this week and I'm like, I don't ever think of my body and try to connect it with God's. It's just not a natural connection that we make. Uh, And and yet that's exactly what Paul's going to do here this morning is he's going to connect our body with respect to God's glory. And in fact, what he's going to do is he's going to tell us that with our body, we have the opportunity to bring God glory. And so as we think about our body, as we think about our sexuality, the use of our body, the engagement of our sexuality, that that what you have to understand is it has deep gospel roots. There's deep gospel roots in our body and our sexuality that that, that are intertwined with one another. So loved ones, here's where we're going. With your body, you will either reflect Jesus for his glory or you will reflect your personal idolatry for its glory. It, it, it is. It's watershed. It's going to go one way or the other. And so here's what I think God's word is, is going to move us toward is, is right here that we use our bodies to reflect the glory and the supremacy of Jesus. 
because Jesus is worth following, that we're going to use our bodies not for sexual immorality, but for God's glory. You might be saying, wait, Mike, are, are you connecting sex with the gospel? No, I'm not doing that. God's doing it. I'm just telling you what God is saying in his word. And so we would all do well to have our eyes on a copy of God's word because you want to see this. Make sure I'm not making this up. That'd be pretty disappointing uh, to, to tell a lie like that. Uh, but let's all get our eyes on a copy of God's word. First Corinthians 6, starting in verse 12. I'm going to read to the end of the chapter, verse 20. Here's what God's word has to say for us here today. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, and then quoting here from Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with the price. So glorify God in your body. Loved ones, let us go to the Lord. Let us ask him to give us wisdom and insight as we navigate this very important, very crucial text. And uh, by God's grace, being able to live this in a culture that so often fails to understand uh, the biblical and healthy perspectives on sexuality. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. God, we thank you for your word, even in times where it's pointed or hard. Uh, yet, God, we know that it's good and, it, and it's for our good. And so we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would come and have the freedom to do what you want to do in and through us. God, I just continue to pray that as we deal with uh, sexuality and this, 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 thinking about this in a, in a healthy sense, that you would give us courage and freedom. Uh, God, courage to be honest about where we're at, freedom to, to free us from the bondage and the prison that, that we might find ourselves in because of this. And so God, would your spirit come and do what only you could do, speak your truth into your people. Whether there's challenge or conviction or encouragement or exhortation or whatever it is, God, would you come and do that right now? God, not only for us as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, I pray for Providence Christian Church, for Dave Holitz. God, for Dennis Haroldson, thank you for those brothers who so faithfully minister in that context. And God, we pray that you would be with them, that you would help them to honor you, that that body of believers would honor you in all things. And God, we want to honor you in all things here this morning. And so that we pray, we pray that you would help us to do that. God, help us to be honest, help us to be real, help us to be willing to uh, go to the places and engage the things that you have for us here this morning. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, well, the title of the message this morning is Our Body and God's Glory. 
our body and, and God's glory. And so let, let me just kind of lay out how, how this is going to play out for the rest of our time is we'll probably spend the next two thirds of our time uh, walking through verses 12 through 20. And there'll be a little bit more of a theological component, a little bit more of a foundational component, uh, maybe not quite as much application as we typically do as we move through the text. But then we've done that uh, on purpose because on the back end, uh, what I want to do is I want to try to give us just some handles, so, some ways to, to be able to grip and to grab uh, what healthy sexuality looks like, how this plays out in our lives, uh, how we should think about this stuff, how we operate, as I've already mentioned, in a society, in a culture that we're, we, here's what's fascinating about our culture. We love to talk about how we're so sexually free, but we're super awkward about it and we're confused and we just can't seem uh, to figure it out. We can't figure it out because we don't have God's perspective on it. And so I want to give us handles on how we function and operate uh, in the midst of this. So at, at times it'll feel like we're moving quickly. Uh, you'll probably be frustrated at times like, oh man, you left so much on the table. I know I'm going to leave a lot on the table. My encouragement to you is go be a noble Berean. Right, Acts 17, the noble Bereans, they went and examined the scriptures to see if these things were so. Uh, go home and spend your own time with this text and really uh, dive into it. Uh, but three things this morning around our body and God's glory. Here's the first. Look at verse 12. That we recognize the limitations of freedom. And you notice that word freedom is in quotes and there's a little bit of a sarcasm or snark to that. Uh, but we recognize the limitations of freedom. Now you, you might be going, wait, limitations of freedom. Put that one together. Like if you're limited, you're not free. And if you're free, you're not limited. I know it's, a, it's an oxymoron, right? It's two things that seem to be opposing to one another, and yet they're playing on each other. Of course, we're familiar with oxymorons, right? You have jumbo shrimp, uh, right? You have deafening silence. You have clearly confused. You have winning cowboys, right? All things. Okay, I mean, I'm a Cardinals fan, so we lose more than anybody, but... but you get the point. Things that are not uh, synonymous, they don't go together. It doesn't work together. And, and so certainly as we look at limitations and freedom, we go, wait a second, what's going on? Well, look at the text. Paul says, all things are lawful for me. And in most of your translations, that's in a quotation mark. And, and, and what the commentators believe is this was a common phrase that was used in the Corinthian church. And so actually we see the same phrase show up in chapter 10 when Paul's dealing with idolatry, but not once but twice in verse 12. He says, all things are lawful for me. And this is, the, they, this is how they would justify or explain their behavior. Now, Paul's not agreeing with that statement. In fact, he's about to blow it up. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So he's, he's taking their statement and then he's turning it on its head. So let me try to give you a, a, a current example to help you understand what Paul's doing. So I was trying to think about different sayings and slogans. And so I was thinking about uh, this one right here. Live and let live, right? Live and let live, which means, hey, you live the way that you want to. I'll live the way that I want to. And it will just all work out. Yeah, you laugh because you're like, no, it doesn't. That's stupid. That's totally illogical. See, if Paul was writing to the American church in the 21st century, he'd go, live and let live. Except that one of, or both of you are wrong. Live or let live, except it doesn't work. Uh, live and let live, except you're going to die. I mean, what, whatever it is that he's going to point us towards, what he's getting at is, no, no, this doesn't work. And so he's exposing the, the, the flaws in their thinking. He's saying not everything is lawful. Not everything is permissible. I mean, logically, that doesn't even make sense. And here's what he's pushing them towards. He's saying, listen, church, you have to understand 
God puts limitations on his people. God puts limitations on his people. And do you know why God puts limitations on his people? For their good. God does not give us limitations because he's mean or grumpy or that he's controlling. He gives us limitations because he loves us and he wants what's good for us. Raise your hand if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. Who's been to the Grand Canyon? Okay, most of you have been to the Grand Canyon. Um, What do they have on the edge of the Grand Canyon? What do they have? They have rails. Is that because the park service is full of a bunch of Nazis and they just want to strip us of all our fun? No, that's there. Why? To protect us from going over the edge. And we don't begrudge the rails at the Grand Canyon. We're thankful for them because they protect us in the same way that we shouldn't begrudge the limitations that God puts on us. We should be thankful for them. I've heard it said before with respect to this, when God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. Right? When God says don't, he means don't hurt yourself. The, 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 the guardrails, the, the limitations that God gives us is actually for our well-being. And so notice how Paul presses into this here in a couple ways. Uh, we recognize the limitations of freedom. First of all, freedom is not always helpful. That's what he says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. I was filling up my car this week with gas, and I was thinking this is what my car drinks. I thought, man, I wonder if I could drink this. Right now, there's nothing stopping me from taking a portable gasoline can, filling it up, taking it home, and drinking it. I'm free to do that. That's just not going to play out very well for me, is it? Right? Just because I can doesn't mean that I should. And, and here's what we begin to do in, in, in America is anytime someone wants to push against freedom, we, we, we get a little bit uncomfortable. We start to cringe. We start to get defensive because I don't think we realize the air that we breathe and just how saturated we are around the concept of freedom. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying freedom's a bad thing. I'm not saying it's a wrong thing. But we have held freedom to be this ultimate ideal. That, that I just don't think you see in the gospel in the way that sometimes we want to portray it in the gospel. Here, here's how this plays out. People want to talk about, oh, I've got freedom in Christ. I've got freedom in Christ. Now, if you are in Christ, you are right. You are free. But when you get into the scriptures, when it talks about freedom in Christ, you know what it talks about? It talks about how Christ has freed you from judgment and wrath and damnation. That's what it's talking about. It's not, it's not this freedom that I can do whatever I want. In fact, in the gospel, in the freedom in the gospel, it's in the atoning work of Jesus that when, when by faith I embrace what Christ has done for me, that is what frees me from the judgment of God that should have rightfully come to me. And yet so often what we do when we talk about freedom in Christ is we say things like, well... Um, You know, Jesus died so I can go have hookups with a bunch of girls or a bunch of guys and just ask for forgiveness. Or Jesus died so that I can go on a bender and tell God I'm sorry. Or Jesus died so that I can be a jerk and claim grace. That's not what the scriptures are pushing us towards. There's a huge distinction between freedom in Christ and what I would call freedom from Christ. Right? Freedom in Christ is I'm spared from wrath and judgment. Freedom from Christ is I want to live in a way that's completely incongruent with anything that the gospel points us towards. And so freedom is not always helpful. Secondly, make note of this, that freedom will lead to slavery. Look at his second line. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
So Paul, Paul's kind of leading them here a little bit. Uh, but, but this idea that freedom is actually going to lead to slavery. And so there's this ironic thing that Paul's doing in the text where he's like, you're actually enslaved to your freedom. And so let me ask you, if you're enslaved to something, are you free? I mean, you, you can't be free. And that's part of what he's getting. He's like, you're not actually free. You're enslaved to your freedom. And what we all have to understand is that all of us, all of us, all of us, we're ruled, we're driven, we are led by something or someone. You are not free, you are not independent, you are not autonomous in and of yourself. We are either under Christ or under sin and self. And Peter actually gives us great clarity on this. Flip over if you want to real quick, Second Peter 2. I'm going to read verse 18 and 19. And in here, Peter's talking to false prophets and false teachers. And listen to what he says. He says, For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh, those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. So he's actually describing a situation not at all unlike what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 6. He's like, you're, you're enticed by sexual items, and, and you think that you're free, but you're not really free. And look at what he goes on to say. They, these false teachers, promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. I don't know about you, if someone's promising me something that they themselves don't have, but I should have it, I'm not really convinced you can give it to me. Right? That's, that's the beauty of the gospel and the resurrection. Right? Jesus isn't saying, hey, I can raise you from the dead, but by the way, I'm going to die and never rise again. Jesus is saying, I am going to raise you from the dead, and check it out, I already did it. These guys are promising them freedom, but they're, they're slaves of corruption. Look at what he says next. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. You are enslaved to something because you are overcome by something. That is not in question. The question is, who or what is that object or item or individual? You will be enslaved to Christ or you will be enslaved to sin. We have to recognize that there are um, limitations to our freedom and it's a kind gift, a good gift that God gives us to lead us forward in grace. Secondly, look at verses 13 through 17. Uh, With this idea of our body and God's glory, we know that our body is for the Lord. We know that our body is actually for the Lord. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Are you willing to live that way? So look at what Paul says. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And you'll notice there's quotes around that as well. And that's another common statement uh, that Paul's going to connect here with the body and sex in just a moment. God will destroy both one and the other. The body's not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute, becomes one body with her? For as it is written, right out of Genesis 2, the two will become one flesh. We know that our body is for the Lord. That our bodies exist not for you and me, but they exist for God. And so he starts by talking about the food in the stomach. 
right? Hey, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. So he's making this connection. And then he moves on and he starts talking about uh, sex and the body. And what he's connecting, what, what Paul's saying is, hey, in the same way that there's a specific function, a specific purpose around the stomach and food, that God is using that to accomplish something, that there's also a specific purpose for our bodies, that they are used in a way, that they function in a way that God intended from the very beginning for them to be used. And namely what he's saying is that you and I in our body can bring glory and honor to Jesus in the ways and through the ways that we use our body. And so he gives us a couple ways that that happens. First of all, look at verse 15. I do not know that your bodies are members of Christ. Our bodies are members of Christ. Our bodies aren't created for sexual morality. That's what Paul has just said. And just in case you're wondering if you're going, Mike, what, what do you mean when you say sexual morality? What, what is that? Well, sexual morality is any sexual sin that finds its place outside of the context or the confines of God's intended design. Okay, so what's God's intended design? That sex is reserved for marriage in a marriage relationship between a man and a woman, and any sexual expression outside of that, outside the covenant of marriage, is outside the bounds and the designs of what God has instituted for all of humanity. And so when we're talking about sexual morality, it might be pornography, it might be adultery, it might be fornication, it might be homosexuality, like there's no shortage of ways that this plays out, but it's anything outside God's intended design. And he's saying, your body wasn't created for that. Your body was created for the Lord. And one of the ways that we see that is that we're members of Christ. What does he mean by that? We're members of Christ. Well, when we get to chapter 12, what Paul's going to talk about is he, it's going to be much more horizontal. It's going to be church, corporate, us, and, you know, this person's the ear, and they're the nose, and, and, and they're the finger, and they're the toe, and they're, right, and all the different ways that God brings all of that together corporately, and then we function as the body of Christ. But here, that's not what Paul's talking about. Here, Paul is focused on our relationship uh, between us and the Lord, right? There's a, a vertical component to this. And then he does this fascinating thing where he goes, hey, you, you, like, th- th- this is about you and God. And then the second question in verse 15, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? That's a pretty repulsive image, isn't it? Hey, Jesus, why don't you come with me to the whorehouse? That's what he's saying. I mean, that, that, that should shock us as we hear like, what? No! He's like, yeah, the, the point is, that's what we're doing when we're in sexual morality. Now, now here's what you have to understand. He's talking about prostitutes. Prostitutes were, were very common in Corinth in that day and age. They were very much a part of the social fabric of, of life there. Um, and so it was very common for people to, uh, to visit prostitutes. In fact, um, r- really the way that it, it maybe is best described is a quote that I came across this week. It says, prostitutes were for pleasure, wives were for offspring. And so that really captures the sentiment of that day and age. So it wasn't uncommon for a man to go to work and at the end of the day, uh, on his way home, hey, let me stop and hook up with a prostitute and then I'll go home. I mean, it's just repulsive and disgusting. But not only was that true, but even in the cultic or religious components of that day and age, it was very common for that prostitution to be incorporated into forms of worship. So not in the church, but in other forms of worship, you would show up at a service like this, and part of the worship service is you just go hook up with a prostitute. And so part of, part of what's going on is Paul is absolutely cutting against all of what was socially normal in his day. 
And loved ones, we need to hear this because I don't know about you. One of the things I hear often from people, especially with respect to sexual ethics, is we go, you know, this is just who we are today. And so, so th- th- there's no point in us pushing hard against this. Okay, if that's true, then why in the world is Paul using prostitutes as an example? It was common and normative in his day and age. And I think if nothing else, that part of what we see here is, is, is a willingness for us to be bold and to stand firm on what God is calling us to. It's cutting hard against what's socially normal and accepted in that day and age. Our bodies are members of Christ, that they serve a specific function. And, and there's this really crucially important thing that Paul has been unfolding over chapter 5 and chapter 6. And we haven't talked as much about it, partly because I knew we were coming to the end of chapter 6. But one of the things that Paul does is he connects sexual immorality with idolatry. He does it in 510, he does it in 6.9, and he does it in a few other places in the New Testament as well. And, and, and what I think he's getting at is this service of self in or immorality with idolatry, which is a worship of self above God. And so the underlying heart issue that Paul is driving against in the Corinthian church is, who is my Lord? Is it Christ? Is it sex? Is it self? Like, wh- what is it? Who is it that's my ruler? Who do I serve? Who's gripped me? And then not only that, but understanding the dynamics of what's happening here, where he's saying, am I going to be joined to Christ or am I going to be joined to a prostitute? Like, who is it? Will I be joined to Christ because he's Lord or am I going to join myself to a prostitute because I'm Lord, but you can't be joined to both. There's an allegiance that has to push or pull towards one or the other. And so then he takes that and he runs to Genesis 2. And instantly we should be reminded of Adam and Eve and all that comes and all that's tied with that and all that the marriage, a relationship that God intended for that. And specifically here, speaking of the sexual component of that, the two will become one flesh. See, what was intended with Adam and Eve as a physical representation of covenant commitment to one another in marriage actually helps us to see the covenant commitment that should exist between Jesus and the church. And so my fidelity to my spouse, my covenant commitment to my spouse actually becomes a depiction and a portrait to the world of the faithfulness of Jesus. I actually tell people in premarital counseling this very thing. I say, when people look at your marriage, you know what they should see? They should see Jesus. Like they should be able to look at how you interact with one another and go, oh, I've seen that relationship before. That's what Christ does with the church. That's the whole point. That's what he's getting at here. Is my allegiance to and covenant with Christ because he's Lord and I'm bound to him? Or is my uh, covenant and allegiance to, to sex or a prostitute or sexual morality because I, I, I'm union to another Lord? Which just let's understand what's happening. To be union to another Lord is a rejection of Jesus. Which is why we can't be flippant about our sexuality. And so how often, just ask yourself, loved one, how often... Does my sexual desire supersede my commitment to Christ? What's fascinating is that doesn't even have to be the case. Like the beauty of and the covenant of marriage is that they don't have to compete with one another. The problem is they compete with one another. When I tell God, I don't like how you set it up and I want to play by my own rules. That's when they're in competition with one another. And so in sexual sin... Not only do we join ourselves to a prostitute, we actually join Christ to a prostitute. We're unioned not to Christ, but to our sexual sin. 
which is massively problematic. And so notice where Paul goes further with this. Look at verse 17. That not only are we members with Christ, but we're one spirit with Christ. Continuing on with Genesis 2, he says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And again, the oneness in marriage and how sex unions us and intertwines us. It's helpful to understand that we're one with Jesus, that we're, we're union to him. We're, we're bound to him. We're connected to him. And so let me just run us down the road on this. Here's how this plays out to be one with Christ. Sex will either be a good gift that in its proper context will highlight and emphasize our oneness in Christ and, and, and it will um, shared solely and exclusively with our spouse. So that's one way it's going to play. Here's the other way. It will be distorted to fulfill our sinful desires. So sex will either glorify Jesus or it will be distorted, distorted to, to satisfy what I want. And so it's possible that in our marriage, we might take the good gift of sex and instead of letting that be something that brings glory and honor to Jesus, actually becomes distorted and removes any sense of glory that's ascribed to him. Now, in fairness, this isn't the only place that we distort God's good gifts to us. In fact, unfortunately, we're pretty good at that and we do that in totality. So let me give you a few other examples or ways that we do this. Um, where we'll worship the creation instead of the creator. We want to worship mountains and rivers and hills and trees and everything else instead of the one who made them. So every time I go to the Grand Canyon, inevitably I see, I see this play out in some level where someone's like, oh, the Colorado River. That thing's amazing. Look at these rocks. It's fantastic. And it's just, it takes everything in me to not be like, yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. It's impressive. But I know a guy who said a word and made this. Um, so if you think this is impressive, you ought to meet this guy. <laughs> but we take, listen, church, what we do is we take something that was meant to enhance our worship of God. And it becomes the object of our worship instead of God. And far too often, this is the same thing we do with sex. Or, or we cheapen grace. What Paul talks about in Romans 6, should we sin more so that grace may abound all the more? Uh, may it never be, which is a really, really modest translation of what Paul's actually saying there. But it's like, I'll just go sin my face off and ask for forgiveness. We take food and drink and it becomes gluttony and drunkenness. We take money and possessions and it becomes security and identity, right? We can go on and on and on with this. You, you, you get the point. But what those things don't have, that sex does have, is the covenant commitment that mirrors what Christ will do with the church. And so to distort that is literally to distort the gospel. We're perverting the gospel in that way. So let me bottom line this for us. We will, we will use our bodies to emulate our oneness with Jesus or we will use our bodies to emulate our oneness with an idol. Our bodies are for the Lord. We're to worship him in and through the use of our bodies. Number three, look at verses 18 through 20. Not only are our bodies for the Lord, but notice also this, that our bodies belong to the Lord. So he's going to ratchet it up here. It's one thing that, hey, it's for God, but it's not just for God. It actually belongs to God. Verse 18, here we see a, a, a command uh, that comes from Paul to the church. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You might want to underline these next words. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. 
we know that our body belongs to the Lord. A couple things with respect to this. First of all, look at verse 18 where we're told to flee from immorality. And it's not suggested. It's not, hey, this would be a good idea. This is an imperative command. Do this. We're commanded to flee from immorality. Why? Well, because your bodies belong to God. So he has the right and the authority and the prerogative to tell you whatever he wants to. That's why. See, when God says, do this, we don't, well, I don't want to. No, that's not how, that's not how it works. So imagine, imagine next weekend you're going to be in your yard, right? The weather's supposed to be a little bit nicer. Maybe you're going to start uh, working in the garden or doing some stuff around the backyard. And, and I just show up and I start giving suggestions of what you should do in your backyard. Cut that tree down. You need to plant that. You need to move that. You need to rip that out. Put this in. Like, man, I've been working in my backyard for 20 years. I love it. What are you going to tell me? No, I'm not doing that. And why can you tell me that? Because you own it. I don't. Now, you don't really own it. God owns it, okay? But, but, but you understand uh, the, the illustration here. And so because you own it, you have the freedom to determine what you will and won't do with it. That's what's going on with respect to your body. You don't own it. God owns it. So we're commanded to flee from idolatry. And notice two things around uh, the, the, this concept of fleeing from, uh, from, not idolatry, sorry, immorality. First of all, that in immorality, he tells us, I mean, this is just kind of weird, right? Uh, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Right, so part of this command to flee is that we're, we're sinning against our own body. Well, what does he mean by that? I'll just tell you, I, I, I really wasn't sure exactly what he meant by that. Uh, although I came across a great quote this week that I thought was really, really helpful by a guy named Paul Gardner who writes a commentary on the book of 1 Corinthians. Listen to what he says. He says, because the body has a specific purpose to reflect certain aspects of the image of God, including his faithfulness to his people and his love and commitment to them, to indulge in sexual sin is therefore very specifically a sin against the body in the sense that it's a sin against the created purpose of the body's sexual function. And so I think what he's saying is instead of using your body in a way that reflects and images God's, God's, God's good design and God's good purposes and, and God's covenant faithfulness, we, we use our body in rebellion against what God has called us to do and be. And so we use our bodies outside the purpose that God has intended for us within that. And so we sin against our body, but notice also that he tells us that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit resides in you. Not near you, not next door to you, not around the corner from you, inside of you. Okay, so um, if you were going to have guests over for lunch... I'm willing to bet you would clean your home. Why? Because that's what we do when people come over. Actually, you know you've arrived at a friendship when you show up and the place is trashed, right? You're like, yes, I'm in. Because, I mean, they'll even clean up for family. But, like, you show up and it's like, no, nah, man, I didn't even, didn't even bother. It's like, I'm in, right? But, but for the most part, right, for the most part, what do we do when people come over? We clean up. How about if Jesus was coming over for lunch? Like, oh, I'd hire professional help, man. Like, got to get this thing done right. And so we can understand it in that sense and that we can be so casual in the area that God actually cares about. And our spiritual well-being. 
hey, you feel free to live in that dump, and I'm just going to keep trashing that, even though this is where you reside. This is why God commands us to flee from immorality. Secondly, notice verse 19 to 20. Our body belongs to the Lord, and because of that, we glorify God in our body. Because we're bought, because we're purchased, the response then is to glorify God in our body. Now, this is so crucial for us to get. So crucial for us to get. You, you, you don't belong to yourself. You don't possess yourself. We're not autonomous. We are literally the possession, the belonging of God. Think of it like this. You are a steward of your body. Now, we understand stewardship with time and with money and talent and resources. I've just, I, I just haven't ever heard anyone talk about, yeah, you, you actually steward your body. But that's what Paul's saying here. That this is on loan to us from God and we will give an accounting in the same way that we do for all those other things for how we've handled and managed our body. But it's not ours. Your body doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. Now, how do you think that would play in the public sphere? Like a lead balloon, right? That's how that's going to go over. It's not going anywhere. But that is what God's word is calling us to. And that's part of the problem and the dysfunction in our society. We're just warped on how we think about these things. Because here, here I came across this quote in this highly disturbing article that I'm not going to give you any information on because, honestly, don't waste your time reading it. It's terrible. But there's a great quote that comes out of it that helps to illustrate, really, the spirit and the attitude of our age. And so there's a pastor, and I'll use that term very loosely. Um, I'll say they refer to themselves as a pastor. I would not refer to them as a pastor, if that means anything. All right, but they refer to themselves as a pastor. And in speaking about sexual purity and righteousness, here's their quote in the article. This part of me is mine, and I get to determine what it is good for, and if it's beautiful, and how I use it in the world. I was reading that this week, and I thought, you ought to read 1 Corinthians 6. Let's solve a lot of issues for you. Because you you couldn't be any further from the truth. And yet this is how we think as a society. And loved ones, what I'm telling you, well, not what God is telling us in his word, I'm just the mouthpiece, is we don't get to make the rules because we've been purchased by Christ. The clay doesn't tell the potter, this is what I'd like to be, this is what you will make me to be. They get on the wheel and they're subjected to the hands of the potter. Because we've been purchased, we're to glorify God in our body. And it's God's purchase of us that's that's the hope of the gospel within us. Right? Can can you see now, beginning to understand, this is how the gospel and and sex are actually connected and intertwined to one another. And and, and how our bodies and what we do with them are tied to the gospel within us. And that we mirror and reflect Christ in how we handle ourselves. And, And because Paul's saying, you've been purchased Jesus dying in our place. But listen, if the gospel not only saves us, what we see in the New Testament is also transforms us. That we're new creatures, told to put on the new self. Right? This is the language and the verbiage of the New Testament. And so if this is true, then the gospel should be transforming and redeeming our sexuality as well. So let me pivot and let me give us five things that are hopefully helpful in and how you and I thinking from a biblical, a healthy biblical perspective on sexuality to, to try to navigate what is so often in front of us in such poor ways with respect to our society. So here we go. Five things. Seeing sexuality through a biblical lens. Here's the first. 
God is the author of sex and sexuality. Don't miss that. That might seem really simplistic, but man, that's a game changer. That God is the author of sex and sexuality. We see this in Genesis 1 and 2. And so think about this. Before sin ever entered into the world, God created sex. There's major ramifications for that. Because in idyllic Eden, before that fateful moment came and sin fractured everything, God had created people who lived in the wholeness and the fullness of what God intended for sexually. Like just last night, we were at the parenting seminar yesterday. We got one of the storybook Bibles and Becky was looking at the first page and she kind of showed me um, laughingly the first page of Adam and Eve. And of course, right, they're covered with their hair or obscured by a branch. And I just laughed. I said, that's the funny thing. Even in our Bibles, we can't even be honest about Genesis 1 and 2 because we've been so corrupted by the fall that they were naked and not ashamed because God created healthy sexuality. This isn't Satan's domain. This isn't something that God hid in the closet and we stumbled upon. We're like, look at this really cool toy. No, no, this has always been God's. And we can't forget that. I think actually it gives us a lot of hope and freedom in being reminded, hey, this isn't something we came up with. This is something God came up with. Secondly, this is probably the most prominent issue in our society today that you and I would find our identity in Jesus, not in our sexuality. That your identity, my identity, our identity, it's not tied to our sexuality, it's tied to who we are in Christ. And there's this insidious lie that Satan sells and continues to sell, and we buy and we continue to buy, and it boils down like this, that who I am sexually defines, is the defining characteristic of my identity. This is the bedrock and the foundation for the sexual liberation movement. This is the bedrock and the foundation for the LGBTQ. This is, this is pretty much, if you find sexual dysfunction, I can, I'd be willing to bet everything I own, you can trace it back to an identity and sexuality, not in Christ. This is what's pervasive in our day and age, and it's why we're broken. Listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. I don't want to undersell our sexuality. We're not less than our sexuality, but God help us that we would understand that we're far more than it, that you can't reduce me and all that I am in Christ down to my sexuality, that that it's bigger and broader and more expansive than that, that we find our identity in Christ, not in our sexuality. Number three, okay, let me say the whole statement. And you got to hear the whole statement. All right, you ready? Sex is a good gift in its proper context. Let me start with the first half of that. Sex is a good gift. Some, some of us, I, I would like to think all of us would go, yes, amen, I'm for that. But he, here's what I know, because the church hasn't done us any favors in the last 100, 150 years, is a lot of times we've treated sex as if it's this dirty, corrupt, horrible, terrible thing. As if it really is from Satan and not from Christ. Sex is a good gift that God gives to us. And some of you grew up, maybe some of you for many of your years have, have believed a lie from the enemy that it's not good, that it's bad. It's a good gift, but it's a good gift in its proper context. And that proper context is God's context. It's God's definition. It's what God thinks, what God feels, what God believes on this. And so you want a biblical example of this, the Song of Solomon is a great place to go. 
I mean, if you've ever read that, you're like, this is explicit. That's the point. And Matt Chandler actually has a fantastic book. It's called The Mingling of Souls. Couldn't recommend it highly enough. Walking through Song of Solomon, just some really practical, tangible things on that. And I would encourage you, parents, if you have teenagers, I think read it before, uh, but just know my kids are going to read that book in a couple years because I think that's a really healthy uh, way and walking through helping them to understand this, that sex is a good gift in its proper context. And so in the context of a loving marriage of a husband and a wife, where sex is this, is this expression of uh, love and dignity and respect and, and, and uh, mutuality, it's beautiful. And do you know why it's beautiful? Because it mirrors what Christ is doing for us. And in, in an odd way, it actually helps and enhances worship. Isn't that fascinating? That in, in, in a healthy expression of sex, that we could actually respond with worship to God in that. But see, when we strip it from God's context, and now sex is not a mutuality of a husband and wife and a covenant commitment, but it's adultery or it's homosexuality, or it's fornication or it's pornography or it's whatever it is. Not only does it distort the human relationships involved in that, it distorts the image that exists uh, or that should exist in reflecting who Christ is and what he's doing for us. Sex is a good gift in its proper context. Number four, and these, are, these last two are going to be a little more personal. So if you were hoping we just kind of hang around the edges, you're wrong. Uh, here we go. Number four, sexual distortion can be redeemed. Did you hear that? Sexual distortion can be redeemed. Now, we live in a day and age where it, it just seems so prevalent and so pressing and all over the place. And there's uh, so much dis- dysfunction around this. And maybe it feels impossible. Maybe for you personally, it feels hopeless. Like, I'm just never going to get victory in this. I'm never going to get over this. I can't get past this. I'm never going to see victory in this. I'm just telling you, sexual distortion can be redeemed. And I think the best way for us to see that is not for me to give some obscure example of someone you don't know or to, hey, I pulled this great story off the internet. I think the best way is for us to see what God's actually doing in and amongst the people of Faith Church. So, uh, Chris and Cindy, why don't you guys come on up? And can we just appreciate the insane vulnerability of this moment? That I'm going to essentially say, hey, tell us how you failed sexually. Uh, I'm willing to bet most, if not all of you, if I just said, hey, would you do this? Like, I won't even tell you that, much less get up in front of the church and do that. But yet what I want you to see is that sexual distortion can be redeemed. And so, Chris, let me start with you, brother. Um, just, just give us an idea of, of your sexual road and, and where you were at and what was going on with you. Well, things started out for me at about 11 years old. I went to a drugstore and purchased a pornographic magazine. I took that back home and hid it and had a little secret from that point on in my life. And that was an obsession with sexual, immoral sexual activity. Uh, it, become, it became an obsession for me. I became something I go to when I felt um, pain or hurt or whatever or just or any time at all. Um, it kept drawing me to it, and I didn't realize at the time that I used this behavior to try to medicate myself against those kind of things. I couldn't cope in life without having this habit. I thought it would surely stop when I got married, but it did not. I was very active in the church over the years uh, and in Promise Keepers, uh, which helped some, but I still kept uh, trying to fight this habit 
I was very, um, I thought this must be just the way it is. And of course, I asked for forgiveness over and over again. And I listened carefully to the gospel. I looked forward to communion services because I felt like mm. that then I would be forgiven. Mm. I did not think I could finally stop this. I didn't, just from my own experience, it didn't seem like that was possible. I thought I just had to live in that forgiveness that I felt. Um, there was a lot of shame in the lack of control in my life. I had to hide, hide out and be somebody different on the inside than what I wanted to look like on the outside. I looked at Romans 7 where it says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. I tried hard to look okay, but I felt worthless. This affected my relationship with Cindy and with others. I would try to isolate, and I would try to keep my secrets. Thanks, brother. I'm going to give that mic to your wife. Hopefully, hopefully you caught one of the things I loved about what you were talking about was there was, there was an absence of wholeness uh, that existed there. Cindy, talk to us a little bit about, um, and at different points you found out different things, but talk about some of that and then what was going on inside of you as these different things would come out. Um, this problem surfaced early in our marriage um, by Chris's confession. And it resurfaced in various ways and in various times throughout our, our marriage. I had many feelings and thoughts. I felt inadequate, unloved, alone, broken, spiritually and emotionally abandoned, like something had died inside me. Yet up to a point, I could push these feelings down or away to keep functioning. But I developed unhealthy coping strategies to survive. We sought counseling from both inside and outside the church, but for us it acted as a Band-Aid on cancer. If things would improve for a while, but then the problems would come back. The addiction did not go away. After 40 years, things had escalated to the point of me being ready to leave our marriage. So, so speaking of that a little bit more, and then okay. Chris, I'll have you uh, just your, your, your thoughts in, in terms of any hope for your marriage. Um, we found a Christ-centered ministry that clearly understood the gravity, depth, and reasons for this addiction. If we were willing to do the hard work of committing to and pursuing deep heart and mind change, then they offered us hope. I clung desperately to Jesus each day as we walked toward recovery. First Peter chapter 1 was my hope. Jesus gave me the strength to stay and do what I needed to do to heal. His word and his Holy Spirit were my strength in my brokenness. Praise God for that. Chris, how about you? You know, well, any hope for your marriage? Our marriage is in a tough place, and I, in a way, I didn't have much hope. But in a way, God, had, if I look back, God had held on to me all, all these years, and I still loved him. I just couldn't figure out how to, to obey him. Um, things had escalated to the point where our marriage was dissolving. And it was the first time in my life I felt like I was going to lose Cindy. I knew that without significant change in my heart level, I would not change because I tried everything else. I knew my heart had to somehow change, and I didn't know how to get to that point. That's a really helpful thing that you talk about a lot of times, especially with sexual issues. We want to address behaviors and not yes. get down into the root issue of what's going on in our heart and some of the ways that we're using sex to cope or to, to medicate or whatever it is inside of us. So thank you for that. Chris, talk about how God began to work redemption within you. Well, he did exactly what I was 
asking for, and that was he touched my heart and changed my heart, the very area that needed the change. I had been so successful, unsuccessful in treating that in the past. I experienced the transformation by the renewing of my mind, as is expressed in Romans 12, 1. I found the book called Pure Desire. I started reading that book, and it spoke to my heart about chapter 4. I knew that I was on the right track. I later looked up the Ministry of Pure Desire and found a group to get involved with, and we went to their seminars. And uh, it's, it's made all the difference. Uh, these people helped me find a way, find the way, by loving me without condemnation and by us sharing honestly and trusting the Lord to heal us as we became honest with him and with each other. I learned how to deal with the challenges of life directly and courageously, not avoiding things but dealing with them without the self-medication of addictive behavior. This was not an instant transformation. It took... A couple of years to, to even get a handle on this, so I feel like it, at least my life was starting to turn right side up again. And we've been involved with this for a total of four years so far. Uh, praise God, three years of of what we would call sobriety at this point. Praise God. And um, it was not comfortable, and it was brutally difficult at times with the honesty and dealing with the pain of life. But... Uh, the Lord has been faithful, and the Holy Spirit has helped helped heal as as things come up in my life. He's been very faithful. Yeah, that that's helpful. A couple of things that that you talk about. It takes time, right? That that we don't sin and sin and sin and sin, and then suddenly, boom, it's all better, right? It, it, it's a process, and, and it's a time, and it takes time. And I love what you talked about in terms of community, right? And group, and that that it's it's not just you in this, but there's people sharing in that. That's Really, really helpful. So let, let me wrap it up this way, guys. Uh, talk to us about where you guys are at today. Um, as Chris mentioned, we've been working through recovery for the last four years, and now we have a healthier marriage than we've ever had. Um, praise the Lord. Mm-hmm. We're not perfect, of course, but we're experiencing emotional and spiritual growth mm-hmm. and connection. We're having honesty between us, emotional maturity, openness, and freedom. We're growing together instead of apart. We are leading recovery groups for others who are seeking freedom from this quicksand. We give all the glory to the Lord, and we want to share our hope with others. Amen. Amen. Add to that. Thanks, Cindy. I'm more in love with Cindy than ever. I realize how much of a gift she is to me. We have been through very difficult times, and based on what I have done, it is amazing that we're still married even. But she has shown the very grace of God in walking with this, with me through this, through all the difficulty and through the recovery. I am finally understanding what it is to be intimate, to completely be known by another person. There are no secrets. We are fully alive and free to love each other. Our marriage is doing well, not in spite of our difficulties. But because of the growing, are growing together as we face them with God's grace. Mm. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. Thank you, guys. Thank you. So, a couple things. Uh, one, that takes a lot of courage. That, that's hard. Uh, it's one thing to just get up and say, hey, uh, my, my name's Cindy and Chris, and we go to church here. It's another thing to be like, here, let me tell you how we failed. Uh, Chris, one of the things, I, th- I don't know if you said at this service, maybe you didn't, I missed it, but you talked about 50 years, like 50 years of wrestling through this issue. 
Uh, and so, loved ones, don't give up. But we had them come up because what I want you to know is that sexual distortion can be redeemed. And so they're actually leading groups right now that are helping people to come out of this. And praise God that God uses sometimes the, the, the most sordid part of our life in a redemptive gospel-oriented way. And so sexual distortion can be redeemed. Here's the final thing, is that healthy sexuality requires honesty. You want healthy sexuality, you got to be honest. Okay, here's what we know. That in our society, there's no shortage of sexual issues. And that's true also within the church. And so if you're here today, and you're in adultery, you're addicted to porn, you're struggling with homosexuality or same-sex attraction, you've got random hookups going on, whatever it is, what I'm telling you, if you want to get healthy, you have to be honest. And, and let me just lay out the process for you. God's going to out you if you won't out yourself. And he's going to do it because he loves you. Because God's not going to let us hide in sin forever. And so if that's the case, there's no point in hiding. You might as well just be honest. But in being honest, it's in the confession of those issues. That's where healing actually begins. You got to be willing to go, hey, here's where I'm at. Here's what's going on. This is a problem. And so let me just get really personal here for a moment. I would implore you, as strongly as I know how, for you to be honest, for you to share and get with someone and say, hey, this is what's going on in my life. Nothing, nothing, nothing gets healed and restored in the dark. It gets healed and restored in the light. So the nature of my job, the nature of my job is that it's not at all uncommon for me to be one of the first or sometimes the first person to hear different issues or things like this in people's life. I mean, I literally have lost count hundreds of times sitting with people and like, hey, here's my thing or here's what happened to me or here's what I'm struggling with or here's. And over time, you just begin to realize, man, that's actually a really powerful moment. Because what people don't realize, and then as soon as they share it, it's like, it's actually quite free. And so here's how it plays out. People, hey, can we get together? We get together. And, and they come in and they're kind of nervous and fidgety. And, and, and you kind of small talk for a minute and say, like, hey, why are we here? What are we talking about? Oh, uh, well, uh, uh, spit it out. Out it comes. And then we just let it hang in the air for a minute. And then I go, how does that feel to have that out? And without exception, their eyes kind of get big and they kind of go back and go, wow, that actually feels really good. I mean, I'm not sure if they thought the, the, the earth was going to quit spinning or I was going to throw a chair at them or call their spouse. I don't know what they were thinking, right? But it's this sense of this is what Satan wants to do. He wants to keep us in the dark. And what God wants to do is he wants to bring it into the light so that he can deal with it and redeem it and restore it and heal it. But nothing happens over here in the dark, loved ones. It only happens when we're willing to bring it into the light. So let me push that a little bit further. Let me give you a few different people that you can go to. Certainly, I I would happily talk with any of you about what you've got going on. My wife would happily talk to you about whatever you got going on. Pastor Ryan and Alexis would happily talk to you about whatever you got going on. A few other people, uh, Dan and Betty Cooksey, 
I'll go and raise your hands. Uh, Dan is one of our elders. Betty, he and Betty have been doing all kinds of different counseling for about as long as I've been alive. Uh, and and Dan, Dan actually counsels me. Uh, so so I, I sit down with Dan, and Dan helps me navigate and walk through different things and uh, things of that nature. Uh, Chris and Cindy, obviously you've heard, I mean, no stigma there. You've heard their story, right? You, you know what's going on with them. Sue, where are you at? So Sue Liljenberg uh, is back here in the back. Normally I would uh, uh, point out her, uh, her partner in crime, Julie Zimmerman, but Julie's in California this weekend. Uh, and so uh, actually another Julie uh, with her, a friend of hers who works with uh, Healing Hearts. Uh, these people in a moment will be available. And maybe you're not like, man, I'm not about to in front of the whole church, walk up and go talk to them. Slip a note in their hand as, as you walk by. Put your name or your email or your phone number in it and say, call me, text me, email me. We need to talk. Maybe that's what you need to do today. But you can't keep it in the dark. It's got to come out into the light. It's got to be exposed. See, healthy sexuality requires honesty. One other thing. What do we do for those that didn't choose this? What do we do for those who are the victims of someone else's sexual sin? I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and pretend that, that I know the pain and, and the angst and the struggle of that. But here's what I do know. Is that the process is the same. That it's got to get brought out into the light. But you've got to be willing to be honest about that. And those people I just identified are some of the best people I've ever met in terms of going to and saying, hey, here's what's going on in my life and I need help navigating this. And part of that is the ability to just call what happened what it is, that it's sinful and wicked and heinous and evil. Not you, loved one, but what was perpetrated against you. But there's not healing in the darkness. The healing and the restoration comes when we're willing to bring things into the light. And so church, this is an honest moment. It's an honest moment where without any pretense, we just have to be willing to go, you know what? I'm done. And it's time for this to be brought into the light. Let's pray.